This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right. In our current uh, sermon series that is almost over, uh, we are studying the unique passages of Luke. So we're studying many of the aspects of the Gospel of Luke um, that were not included for whatever reason in Matthew, uh, Mark, and John. And so obviously, um, while the center of history, the center of redemption, the center of the Bible is Jesus's crucifixion, and so while obviously all four Gospels include that crucifixion, and while uh, all four mention that Jesus was crucified between to criminals, and while even Matthew and Mark let us know that there was some conversation going on between the three, it is only Luke that gives us the details of that conversation, and it is only Luke that tells us of the conversion of one of the two criminals. And so Luke, in comparison to Matthew, Mark, and John, he makes these two criminals more real. They're more uh, contoured. They're more nuanced. Um, they're more human, uh, if you will. And in light of that, uh, while I acknowledge there is so much going on in this text, in light of Luke's unique emphasis here, uh, I want to take a somewhat unique angle on this sermon. And the angle is this. Luke is providing for us a vignette of suffering, hardship, and pain. I want you to presume that you're a hundred yards away and on the horizon there are three men lifted up on crosses. They're suffering emotionally. They're naked. They're humiliated. They're mocked. They're ashamed. They're suffering physically. They're undergoing what has been labeled historically as the most inhumane form of capital punishment known to man. They're suffering what I would say psychologically or philosophically or maybe, maybe mentally, they're about to die. 
There's no logical reason for them to presume that they're going to be alive at dusk. And the ultimate questions of life that you could ignore for most of your life come crashing down on you in this moment and at this point. They are under intense heat and pressure. I would dare say more heat and pressure than any of us have ever experienced. And Luke, again, this is not all that he's teaching, but it's a unique contribution that he gives and it is therefore our focus today. So, so Luke provides on either side of Jesus two extremes when it comes to responding to suffering. I've never thought of the text this way. It hit me on Monday that this is the angle I should take. I tried to avoid it all week, but here we are. On the one hand, pardon the pun, you have an angry, angry man spewing venom blaspheming God. On the other man, in the exact same scenario, you have one humble, under control, articulate, rational. And from a biblical perspective, one is suffering poorly and sinfully, one is suffering well and righteously. And so our sermon is going to focus on this vignette of suffering, and we're going to ask the question, what does it look like to suffer well? What does it look like to suffer poorly? If you haven't noticed you are going to suffer in this life. Again, likely not to the extent of these criminals, but you're going to experience hardship and pain and suffering. And regardless of whose whose fault it is, your life is going to be hard. Your life will be physically, emotionally, and psychologically painful because of your sin, because you live in a broken world, and because other people are going to sin against you. Life's hard. In fact, from what I can tell, ordinarily, life's trajectory is towards more and more realities that cause pain, not less. As trends go, from what I can tell, we are headed towards more pain in the future and not less. We're headed towards more suffering, not less. We're headed towards death, not life. And so the question is this, who do you want to be in suffering, hardship, and trial? Who do you want to be? Who are you? Who have you been? Biblically speaking, have you, are you, do you want to be one who suffers poorly or one who suffers well? I'm not asking you, do you want to suffer? You will suffer. That is a promise. But how do you want to suffer? We'll look at it this way. The one who suffers poorly, the one who suffers well, and how to increasingly suffer well. So first, the one who suffers poorly. To start, the first criminal in verse 39, he's clearly suffering. The man's hands and feet have been fastened by either ropes or nails to a wooden apparatus. And most likely, like Jesus, he has been physically beaten to ensure that his time on the cross doesn't take too long. And in short, this man is suffering poorly because he is arrogantly angry with God. In verse 39, read it with me. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He railed, hurled abuses at, blasphemed, insulted Jesus, who is God. Now I tell you, there's many ways to suffer poorly, but suffering poorly certainly includes suffering angry at God. And while I want to be quick to say that not all anger is sin, uh, anger at God is always sin. 
And while I want to be quick to say that being angry is sometimes righteous and loving, being angry at God is never righteous and loving. I want to be quick to say that God is big enough to handle our anger and he's gracious enough to forgive us for the same, but that doesn't make it any less sinful. Our text labels these two next to Jesus simply as criminals, a very broad term that means malefactor or evildoer. The other gospel writers uh, label these men as insurrectionists, as freedom fighters. They were guerrillas or zealots, and they they were trying to get their fellow Jews to take up arms against Rome in in an effort to kick Rome out of Israel. And these two had not simply demonstrated peacefully against Rome. These two had called the nation to arms, and they themselves had been violent, and presumably they themselves had killed Romans. And it seems most logical to think that this man assumes that Jesus is on his side. It says in verse 38 that there's an inscription above Jesus, and it reads this way. This is the king of the Jews. This is an inscription that the Romans would often put above a freedom fighter who led other freedom fighters. And this is put above those who would call their their nation to arms as occupied citizens to rebel against Rome. And so Rome would put up on a stake as high as they could and torture as long as they could anyone who called themselves the king of a people, a king other than Caesar. And so this man assumes this guy's with me. Also, if he knows anything about Jesus, he knows that one of Jesus's 12 disciples is named Simon the Zealot, a former freedom fighter. In this criminal's mind, he and Jesus share the same enemy. It is Rome, and Rome is crucifying them. They're together in this. If you go further, his question to Jesus reveals that he believes that Jesus is the Christ. He believes that Jesus is the figure from God with divine power who's going to bring deliverance to Israel. Look at your text. The religious leaders who scoffed at Jesus, verse 35, assumed that he was not the Christ. They said, let him save himself if he is the Christ. The Roman soldiers who mocked Jesus in verses 36 and 37, they also assumed that he was not the Messiah. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. But the criminal says, are you not the Christ? The Greek grammar assumes an affirmative response. It's not a real question. It's a reminder. Jesus is so known for his power. He has openly and miraculously healed the sick. He has exercised demons from the oppressed. He has even brought back to life people who died. And in the criminal's mind, Jesus is God's special representative, if not God himself. And in his mind, Rome is the enemy. And in his mind, Jesus has the power. And he's like, Jesus, you fool, wake up. You're the Christ. Save yourself and save us. Now think. Why is he bent? Why is he angry? Why is he blaspheming God? Why is he suffering so poorly? This is why. This is the part applicable to our lives. Because he can't get Jesus to execute his plan. He's angry and he's falling apart at the seams because in his mind, now listen to this, in his mind, he has more brains than anyone, but tragically to him, he has too little power. In his mind, he knows exactly what should happen, and he can't get it done, and it is making him angry. Here's the bottom line. He's suffering poorly because he sees Jesus as a means to an end. 
He thinks his end is best. He can't get Jesus on board to making his end happen. His view of Jesus is this. Jesus has more power than me, but Jesus does not have more brains than me. The angry sufferer in general, the sufferer angry at God fundamentally believes my brain is huge, but my muscles are small. And at the same time, God's muscles are huge, but his brain is small. God is not lining up his power with this man's plan. God is not doing a good job with being the means to the end. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. For this sermon, at least, I wanted to find suffering this way. It's the lack of something good or it's the presence of something bad. And we all suffer. We all experience lack. We all experience attack. We all experience pain. And the question is this, who have we been? Who are we now? Who do we want to be? You and I will suffer poorly to the extent that we see Jesus as a means to an end. The first criminal is essentially saying this, I'll follow you, Jesus, if you do X. Do you see how in that equation, X becomes God instead of Jesus? Get us off these crosses. Deliver us from this pain. Work my agenda and I will follow you. Applying this to our lives, what is the X? What is the end for us? To where do we expect Jesus to take us. And maybe we're not angry yet because we haven't yet given up on him taking us there. Or maybe the X, the end, is still in our lives now, and so we don't realize exactly to what extent we've made an idol of it. And so maybe we're not yet suffering poorly because Jesus hasn't lovingly taken it away from us. Angry suffering flows from seeing Jesus as a means to an end instead of the ultimate end. Heal me, Jesus and I'll follow you. Give me this job, and you'll be my God. Give me a spouse or a kid, and you'll have proven yourself to me. Make my sex life romantic and dreamy and, and passionate, and I won't be angry anymore. Don't, don't let me have another panic attack, and, I, and I'll obey you. Write this sermon. Make it great. Give me a reputation, and I'll give you the glory when everybody's listening to me. Make my spouse, that's it, y'all. I thought for that for you guys. Make, make my spouse better. Make my children better. Make me better. If so-and-so were still alive, I'd be more joyful than I am right now. God, I'm smarter than you, but I'm not as strong as you. This could be a great partnership. Get with the program. Now, we may not say it that specifically, or maybe we haven't said it like that in a while, but I would say to you when reflecting on my own life, my lack of worship of God, my lack of joy in God, my lack of witness for God, when in pain, shows the extent to which he is a means to end and not the ultimate end. There are many ways to suffer poorly. The criminal in verse 39 suffers poorly in his arrogant anger with God. Next, let's consider the one who suffers well. Okay, and the second criminal Uh, we have a snapshot or an example of what it looks like to biblically suffer the pain that we will experience in this life. If you keep your eyes on verses 40, 41, and 42, I'm going to give you some descriptions of the one who suffers well. Essentially, our third point is how he got there. 
But what I'm going to do first is I'm going to paint the picture of what it looks like to suffer well. And in summary, to suffer well, we will suffer humbly, repentantly, hopefully, and honestly. So first, humble. The second criminal asked the first in verse 40, do you not fear God? Interesting question for one railing at God. The most basic, fundamental, foundational posture that the Bible calls all humans to in their interaction with God is humble fear. Not abject terror, but fear and awe and worship and submission. To not presume that God is strong but dumb, but to presume that we are weak and we are dumb, especially compared to his brilliance and his power. Humility and suffering says this, God, I don't know what you're doing in this situation, but I have to trust that what you're doing is good and loving and best. It may not be what I would do. In fact, I wouldn't choose it, but I don't see and I don't know and I don't understand what you see and know and understand. I fear you. I trust you. I will wait for you. To suffer well is to first suffer with humility, to suffer with a low view of self compared to God. Second, this man suffers well by being repentant. Keep reading in verse 40. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, now you have to stay with me here, okay? This is going to be more complex than the first sub-point. This is going to take some time. It's going to be complex, and it's going to be nuanced, but I, I want you to stay with me. I would generally say this to start, that we will suffer well to the extent that we stay in touch with our own sinfulness, our own depravity, and our own need for a Savior. In this instance, in Luke 23, the second criminal is owning his sin, his sin of violent insurrection. He's owning the current pain that has come into his reality as a result or largely as a result of his own, quote, deeds that were wrong. In repentance, he's owning the human consequences of his sin, and it is a further extension of his humble posture before the Lord. We're going to get to this in a moment, okay? In a moment, I'm going to show that he's asking for grace on a level of divine justice, but through repentance, he is owning and accepting justice on the human level. Uh, Mike Bowen is our downtown uh, site director. He was driving to his father's funeral uh, this last weekend, and on the way, he got a ticket uh, for speeding. And after giving him the ticket and in general being uh, less than friendly uh, to him, the officer, uh, after giving him the ticket, discovered that he was driving to his dad's funeral and that there was chaos in the back of the van and it was just a really rotten day. And when discovering that, the officer uh, showed remorse and almost uh, looked as though he wished he could take the ticket back. And Mike's response to him was appropriate and respectful and faithful. He said, no, sir, it's okay. I was speeding and I deserve this ticket. You see, Mike and his speeding had sinned against God and he had sinned against man. And on a human level, he was receiving the consequences that were coming to him for his sin. On a divine level, Jesus paid for that speeding along with a lot of other sins for Mike and a lot of other sins for you and I. But in his repentance, he's taking the human consequences of what he did. It's another sign of humility. 
If suffering poorly is based on arrogance, then suffering well starts with fear and moves into repentance. It's placing yourself as a human and as a sinner in a humble posture before God. But I want to go a little farther on this point. I want to ask the question, what about suffering and pain that is not a result of our sin, but is the result of living in a broken world or is the result of someone else sinning against us? What about that kind of suffering, the suffering that results from cancer or the suffering that results from abuse, let's say? In that kind of suffering, do we still need to repent? I can see how when it's my sin that brought the pain, I should repent. But the question is, when it's someone else's sin, should I repent? We'll start with suffering that comes from being sick. Is this to be repented for? Is this part of suffering well? And I would say on a specific level, maybe. But on a general level, yes. Jesus encounters a man born blind in his ministry, and the disciples say, did this happen because he sinned, or did this happen because his parents sinned? And the assumption is just too simple. The assumption is that all illnesses are a result of some specific sin. And Jesus said, neither. He essentially says, you can't always take physical suffering and attribute it to a specific sin. But at the same time, James, in his letter to the church dispersed, said, sometimes your illnesses are based on unrepentant sin. And so in pain related to illness, on a specific level, suffering well doesn't always include repentance. Although I would recommend, based on James, that you sit before the Lord and live in community and ask the question, is this illness coming into my life because of unrepentant sin? But I would also say in a general sense, that since all physical pain is a result of human sin, and since we're all sinners, I would say we're all generally responsible for the physical disintegration and disorientation in our world. And in a general sense, repentance is always called for. It's just a humbling before the Lord, acknowledging that this is happening because we're sinners. To go a little further, what about abuse? What about suffering and pain that's the result of another's sins against you? Does suffering well include repentance? And this one, on a specific level, I would say no. But again, on a general level, I would say absolutely. Any elder or friend or counselor trying to love someone in an abusive situation, past or present, any elder, friend, or counselor worth their salt is going to try and help that person in at least two ways. First, they will try and help them grieve what has been done to them, not to take blame for what has been done to them, not to repent for what has been done to them, which is often the victim mentality. That's specifically. But at the same time, a friend or a pastor or a counselor worth their salt are going to try and keep that person in a current place of repentance and faith for what they have actually done wrong. Maybe in that relationship, but certainly in life. And here's the reason why. What does that person need? What do they desperately need at this time to not be enslaved and embittered? Forgiveness. They need the power to forgive. Where does the power to forgive come from? Being forgiven by God. How do we experience forgiveness from God? We don't repent for sins that other people did to us. We repent for sins that we did. We receive that forgiveness 
And that 10,000 talent forgiveness flows out in the direction of 100 denarii debt. In general, suffering well includes repentance. Not always for what's been done to you, but certainly for what you've done. I actually think this text is so helpful here. Okay, Rome was an oppressive conqueror to the Jews. They had dominated them unjustly. Crucifixion, even by Constantine in the fourth century, was named the most inhumane form of capital punishment known to man. And this one is suffering well, not asking for a lawyer to sue Rome. He's suffering well by owning the deeds he has done wrong and turning to Jesus for help. In a sense, it's the most courageous thing he can do, his own, his own sin. Suffering well, suffering biblically, growing through pain includes this humble fear, and it includes this ongoing repentance. Next, suffering well also includes being hopeful. Verse 42, the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's he doing? He's taking his focus off the here and now, and he's putting his hope into the age to come. Instead of looking for ultimate satisfaction and healing in this life, he's setting his heart on the kingdom of Jesus, and he's looking for life and peace in the future, in that time, and in that place. James, in his letter in chapter 1, he says this, Count it all joy when we meet trials, hardships, pain of various kinds. And then James says that in part, we will be able to do that when we remember verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Whether it's the Old Testament story of Job or whether it's Paul in Romans 8, the Bible clearly says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Hopefulness in the midst of suffering is founded upon the belief that God has all the power and all the brains and all the love he needs to make all things work together for good. This criminal is placing his hope in the age to come, that place where his entree is given to him by Jesus and that place in the words of Tolkien where all sad things come untrue. Of course, we can't wait for paradise where all good things come true. Tolkien also said in Paradise and Lord of the Rings, all sad things come untrue. Finally, in this picture of suffering well, we see not only humility and repentance and hopefulness, but we see honesty. Look at the beginning of verse 40. But the other, speaking of the second criminal, rebuked him. (laughs) He rebuked the criminal suffering poorly. This is not something you're allowed to do in America. You are in big trouble if you do this in America. This is the sermon for another day. But let me ask you a question. Who's the best possible person to give a loving and strong rebuke to someone who is suffering arrogantly and poorly? Is it someone who's never experienced what they're going through? (laughs) Or is it someone who's experienced exactly what they're going through? You know, and I I give that to you as a a yellow sign in case you're listening to the sermon for someone else. Maybe a red light stop. 
And in a moment, we're going to see that this criminal that is suffering well started out suffering poorly. Matthew and Mark are going to tell us that, that both criminals started out reviling and insulting uh, Jesus. So I'll take the question a step farther. Who's the best person to rebuke someone suffering poorly? The person who has suffered poorly, who has been transformed, and who is now suffering well. You see that? Don't apply this sermon to someone else. It's for me, and it's for you. So to review, one who suffers poorly suffers arrogantly and angrily before the Lord. Seeing him as a strong but dumb means to an end. To suffer well is to be humble and repentant and hopeful and honest. But let's ask the question, how do we get there? I hope that you, like me, are longing in your current suffering and in your future suffering to live with the freedom and the joy and the hopefulness of this second criminal. How do we get there? No one starts out suffering well. I've never met someone who suffers well from the beginning. They suffer poorly, they are transformed, and then they increasingly suffer well. Here's how we increasingly suffer well. In short, Jesus and being with Jesus has to become the ultimate end of our lives. In short, our affections for X have to decrease because of an increasing affection for Jesus. How does this happen in this man's life? All suffering is a poorly assigned affection and a poorly assigned hope. All angry suffering is a poorly assigned affection and a poorly assigned hope. So we know that the second criminal started out just like the first. Listen to Mark 15, 32. Those, plural, who were crucified with him, singular, also reviled, plural, him. And so at the beginning of the crucifixion, the one in our passage suffering well was suffering poorly. What radically changed him? What did he see? What do we need to see? Jesus' grace and Jesus' forgiveness. Verse 33. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He was abandoned by his friends. Father, forgive them. Betrayed by a close companion. Father, forgive them. He was declared innocent by every authority who put him to trial, Roman and Jewish. And yet because of the strong crowd and because of the weak leader, he's being slaughtered. Father, forgive them. Beaten to within an inch of his life. Father, forgive them. Hanging naked on the cross, dying from exposure and asphyxiation and loss of blood. Father, forgive them. The Roman guards are rolling dice. They are playing paper, rock, scissors for his clothes and his underwear. Father, forgive them. The rulers and the soldiers and the criminals crucified with him are reviling and mocking and insulting. Father, forgive them. What did he see that so radically changed him? He saw the most beautiful human ever suffering beautifully for him. On some level, he understood that Jesus was dying for sins, but not his own. Look at verse 40. He says he's under the same sentence of condemnation, but verse 41, this man has done nothing wrong. 
So on some level, the criminal saw this great irony repeated over and over in the passage. And that is this, that Jesus's proof for being the Messiah would not be the saving of himself, but it would be the letting of himself die for the salvation of others. Verse 35, he saved others. Let him save himself. The criminal understands he can't. If he leaves the cross, no one's saved. Verse 37, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The criminal at some level understands, don't you see, he can't. He's already given salvation to so many at this point, and if he does not die to fulfill his promise for them, they're not saved. Verse 39, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And on some level, this transformed one realizes that Jesus can't save himself if he's going to offer forgiveness. He can't do both. He can't say, Father, let's forgive them and not pay for it. How did Jesus, for this criminal, go from being a means to an end, reviling him to the ultimate end, worshiping him? By being so beautiful and by offering such a wonderful salvation to any humble sinner who repents. Another thought that can transform us, that can take us from suffering poorly to suffering well. Look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when or whenever you come into your kingdom. In other words, I know that you're going to die. I know that I'm going to die, but I also know that this is not the end. And in some way, I know that your kingdom will exist in another day. And on that day, look what he asks for. He says, I want to be in your heart. I want to be in your mind. I want to be an intimate part of what you're doing. Verse 43, and Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The criminal says kingdom. Jesus says paradise. The word paradise is of of Persian origin, and it meant garden. It was used for the private garden of a king. If someone was in the private garden of the king, it showed that that person had incredible status with the king, usually his most trusted servant or his spouse. And Jesus is saying, today we die. And today we'll be in my garden and we will be so close and so intimate. I will share myself and my glory and my beauty with you forever. He says, can I be in your mind when you get in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you're going to be all in my heart when we get to my garden. Look a little closer at what Jesus says in verse 43. He doesn't say, I'll be with you. He says, you'll be with me. Think. The text is telling us that it's not just paradise for us to be with Jesus. It's paradise for Jesus to be with us. For us, there is not paradise apart from him. For him, there is no paradise apart from us. What can that do to our souls as we suffer for a little while? I chose Hebrews 12 for our call to worship. I want us to think about this phrase that is in that text. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy set before Jesus? What was the joy in his future on the other side of the cross that he did not have before dying? What's the only thing he didn't have before the cross? You! Me! The redeemed! 
the one who suffers poorly, the one in need of salvation, the one in need of grace and forgiveness, the one who will forever be with him because they used him and reviled him and he forgave them and he died for them. Well, what can cause us to fear and trust God in the midst of anything? What can increase our affection for him so that our affection for X is dispelled? Only this. For Jesus, it is no paradise to be apart from us. He went to unimaginable and unspeakable lengths to have us. Let's worship him together. Jesus, we thank you that you have the power to make this kind of impact in our lives. We thank you not just for forgiveness. We thank you for the picture of a changed man. We long to be different. We want to so radically believe your gospel that we become free and joyful and generous and honest and completely open and vulnerable before you. Holy Spirit, would you come and give us eyes to see this magnificent Savior? Would you come and increase our capacity to enjoy him, that you might decrease in us that desire to enjoy things that are not from you? Would you forgive me for being so silly about created things in the face of this creator who died for me? Would you convince us of this incredible love Would you take us away from thinking of the gospel as a transaction? And would you press deep into our hearts this radical love of God for us? In your name we pray, Jesus.